Jeremiah 31, starting here at the 18th verse. And beloved, once more hear the word of the living God. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned. I repented. And after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed. Yea, even confounded. Because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up, waymarks, make thee high heaps. Set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O virgin of Israel. Turn again to these thy cities. As far as the reading of God's word, and may he richly bless us under it this evening. Our text, verses 18 and 19, is a really, it's truly a remarkable text. It's remarkable for a number of reasons. If, if you were a, a member, as it were, of the congregation of Judah at this time, you for years would have been accustomed to hearing the prophet Jeremiah come. And he would come as the voice of God's pleading, pleading his case against the wayward church. Uh, Jeremiah would come time and time again as God's, as it were, as God's mouthpiece, his barrister, uh, showing Israel, showing Judah that she had sinned, showing Judah that, that he had a case against her, a just case. And so through the prophet Jeremiah, Israel had become accustomed to hearing that that God as an offended party, and also God as supreme judge, he had passed sentence. And from the first to the 29th chapter, you and I find God through his prophet not only doing the work of of pleading his case and, and pronouncing sentence, but you find him also Promising execution. That is until you get to chapter 30. And then everything changes. From chapter 30 and into our text, everything takes a shift. The tone changes from one of threatening to promise of great grace. One from assurances that Judah too will go into exile to promises that the church will come out of exile. She will inhabit the land from which she was driven. And more than that, she would turn to God. This is a remarkable text. And in our passage this evening, just verses 18 and 19, you have a picture of Ephraim's return. Ephraim, you remember, of course, is often how God and his prophet, through his prophets, would refer to the northern tribes. Ephraim here is the personified, returning exile. The one who has been brought back, not only to the land of promise, but brought back to his God. And here's what we find Ephraim doing. The Lord says, first of all, that I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. 
And so we have the manner. This is how Ephraim is turned. The idea that's there is, is one of, of a man so filled with grief that he's distraught. I mean, literally the word bemoaning here could be translated staggering. And in Jeremiah 29, the same word is used, and, and it's used as a synonym for, for mourning and for lament. It, it's the idea of, of one who is burdened with his own grief. I, says the Lord, surely have heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Now that's the manner. What is the content of his cries? There are three things in these two verses that Ephraim tells us. The first thing that he does is he gives us a confession. He says, I was chastised, I was a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. The second thing that he does is he gives us something of a declaration. If you like, a statement of faith. He says in the latter part of verse 18, Turn thou me, and I shall be turned, for thou art the Lord my God. And then the 19th verse We leave Ephraim as he gives us the consequence of all of this. Surely after that I was turned. I repented. And so in verses 18 and 19, you and I have a picture of Ephraim turned back to the Lord. Here you and I have a picture of a man, as it were, who who now is reflecting in a new way upon himself, upon his sin, and upon his God. But I want you to notice, beloved, as you look at verses 18 down to 21, as you look at this entire text, and we'll see this tonight as well, this is a picture, first of all, of Ephraim turning to God. But as we'll see, God willing, this Lord's Day evening and the next midweek as well, here you also have a picture of the Lord turning to Ephraim. Here you and I get a picture of Ephraim turning back to the Lord. As God had promised. And in this text, then what you and I have is a display of the coactive powers of grace working in the soul. This is what it looks like for God to turn someone to himself. We get an intimate picture of how that grace is manifest. And so in these two verses, verses 18 and 19, you and I, we, we are given a picture that's breathtaking, a picture of true repentance in, in its most intimate and existential sense. I want us to take up this text in that way. I know we've not spent really any time in Jeremiah lately, but I think in these verses, you and I, as we think about our own walk with the Lord, we are certainly instructed in what we should be praying for and what should be evident in our own lives. As we hold these two verses together, as we contemplate the three things that Ephraim shows to us, the theme before us is quite straightforward. It's that this work of grace, this repentance, makes much of sin's evil as it also does of grace's power. Or to put it another way, repentance makes much of the sinfulness of sin as it does also of the power of divine grace. That's what we learn from these two verses, and I want us us to walk through that briefly this evening. I want us to see, first of all, how this work of grace, this turning of Ephraim, highlights the evil evil of Ephraim's sin. And you get that in verse 18, when, when Ephraim says, Thou hast chastised me. 
He, he's reviewing God's past dealings with him. He's taking, as it were, a broad scope of his own experience with the Lord. And, and so he's reviewing the acts of God's providence. He's, he's looking even behind that to the purpose for which God had sent those afflictions. And then on top of all of those, he reflects on his own responses, his own conduct under the rod of God. What you find here, first of all, is Ephraim is reinterpreting providence in a way he hadn't before. God had promised that, that if his people were going wayward, that he would chastise them. You remember in Deuteronomy 29, that whenever God, through Moses, told Israel what the nations would say when God visited them in this way, they said that they would, they would reflect, they would come to the conclusion that all of these afflictions have come because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their father. Ephraim now sees this. He was chastised. He recognizes the hand of God. But then, friend, you recognize too, he doesn't stop there. He gives us a picture of his own behavior under that chastisement. He says, I was a bullock, unaccustomed. And so you have this moment where Ephraim comes to us and he says, God was working with me. He, he was, as it were, bringing the rod to bear upon me. And yet in response, all that I gave were tokens of beastliness, irrationality. I was not one who heard the rod. Here you have a picture of Ephraim reflecting much on the fact that his conduct was of the most heinous and aggravated kind. Here you have a picture of repentance exalting God's dealings with the soul and simultaneously abasing self. And I want you to notice, beloved, in Ephraim you have a picture of this that's quite instructive. He shows us something about himself. He says that he was incorrigible. He was incorrigible under all of God's dealings with him. And I want us to think about that just very briefly. If you remember, if you remember back to Isaiah 1, our text that we read at the beginning, you remember the Lord asks these questions. He says, why should you be stricken anymore? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. And, and, and the, prophet, the prophet Amos says something very similar. He says, I have smitten you with blasting and mildew, yet have you not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And so through his prophets, God often came to Israel and he says, I have sent these chastisements to you. And, to, and through Isaiah, he said to Israel, he says, I have sent so many chastisements to you, I can't find a place that is not afflicted. And yet you will not turn to me. I have sent these rods that you might learn, and yet you have remained incorrigible. Ephraim in our text recognizes that stubbornness in himself. He says, God in his, in his providence has sent these afflictions that I might turn to him. He has sent these afflictions that I might not be so worldly, that I might loathe sin, that I might lay hold of him. And he says, for all of that, for all of God's dealings with me, I was as a beast. I would not respond to the rod. 
You see, friend, there is a cautionary word for every one of us. Ephraim's cry here is a reminder that you and I under affliction are to improve it by drawing our souls close to Christ. You remember in Hebrews 12, you have that command. He says, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. The word despise there is not hate. The word despise there is the word for disregard, to ignore, to be impervious and insensible to these things. Ephraim says that's what he was. He was despising the chastening of the Lord because he remained a beast. You see, those things were sent to Ephraim as they are, as they are to all as clarion calls to repent. These things, Ephraim is saying, should have made me otherworldly, humble, dependent, penitent. These things that ought to have made me holy, I've abused. He was incorrigible. But there's something else in this that I want you to recognize as well before we move to our next point. And that is the phrase or the image, rather, that we're given here. Ephraim describes himself as a bullock unaccustomed. Now, I stopped there for a moment for a reason, because our translators have supplied a thought to that that's not in the original. In the original, it ends there. He was a bullock unaccustomed. Now, if we take it, a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, and we interpret that in terms of the 30th chapter, the preceding chapter, then you and I are required to read the yoke, particularly as God's judgment. But I find it striking that in the original, it is left, as it were, as an unfinished thought, or left, if you like, more generally. He was simply a beast, unaccustomed, a beast untamed. And friend, that image ought to conjure up for us this idea that that he was a dangerous and an unprofitable creature. Why do you train a bullock? You train a bullock so that he might be useful. Why, Why do you train a beast like this? So that he might be fruitful. And if the beast is unaccustomed to that training, whether it be the rod or gentle leading, it is good for nothing. Ephraim says as he looks back on his life, so was he. It's as though he comes to us and he says, all that God had employed to make me profitable and fruitful, I abused it. I abused his chastisements by not making use of them, but I abused also his means, the calls of his pastors, the, the, the word of God that had, been, that had, been, that had transcended generations, I, I ignored and abused it all. And so, friend, here you also have a picture of Ephraim highlighting the sinfulness of his sin. He ought to have been profitable, and he wasn't. And he brings that before the Lord. He testifies He testifies that he was like the fig tree of Luke 13. You remember there the husbandman comes. Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? Ephraim says as he looks upon his past, he says, I see so much barrenness, fruitlessness. I was merely a cumberer of the ground. 
Beloved, true repentance will lead us that way. It will make us think much, not only about the the evil of the act, the evil of of a course of sin that's inherently in the sin itself, but we will also think about the ways in which that guilt has been aggravated through the mercies abused, through the chastisements ignored. But I want to hasten to a second point. Not only does this work of grace show Ephraim his sin in a clearer light, but you notice it also highlights for him, if you like, the efficient of this work of grace. That is, that which will cause him to turn. Notice here, in, in the end of verse 18, he's, he says, turn thou me. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, that is, return me. It's in the hifil valstem, which means that this is causative. Ephraim is saying that God must be active. And here, Ephraim renders himself as passive. It's striking. In the original, it's, it's a really striking, striking thing to encounter because here he is saying the Lord must turn him. And then he says, and I shall be turned. It's a declarative statement. He's saying that divine omnipotence will certainly, will surely turn him. But the point is, it must be the Lord who turns him. And then you find this clause that follows, for thou art the Lord my God. A friend, very literally, as I've just explained this to you, that is how the text stands for us. He says, the Lord must turn him, and as the Lord turns him, he will certainly be turned. And the reason for all of this is because the Lord is his God. Now, what do we make of that? Well, friend, here you have a picture of repentance acknowledging dependence upon divine grace. You're not given here, uh, I want you to note, the mechanics of how Ephraim turned. We're not given the steps, if you like, that God took with him. You and I instead are looking at the motions and the thoughts of one who is repenting. And this is what that bears out. It shows us that a truly penitent heart acknowledges divine dependence. In other words, that the man here acknowledges that without the grace of God, he will not be turned. But if the grace of God is at work, he will be turned infallibly. And friend, there, there are two things I want you to notice here as this holds out to us a picture of repentance generally. Evangelical repentance will always acknowledge this kind of dependence. Legal repentance won't. We'll get to that in a moment. But evangelical dependence will come acknowledging that that repentance must be granted. That the man's resolve is insufficient to break the dominion of sin. That the man's heart is deceitful and he requires omnipotent grace to intervene. I want you to notice that then this is an acknowledgement of a moral or spiritual inability. Left to himself, Ephraim would not be turned. That's the idea. And friend, evangelical repentance must include that. For some reason, we've lost this in Reformed preaching. I don't know why. 
The old preachers reminded us that that there was often a way that the soul came to this conclusion that Ephraim has. The first way is often that, that the soul that comes under concern for its salvation will initially try to go through the covenant of works by just simply endeavoring to merit righteousness. I'll amend my ways. I'll try to labor, as it were, to, to, to find myself back in favor with God. But that fails. Invariably that fails. And so the soul moves to another step. It says, well, I obviously need the grace of God to be at work within me. So, so then the soul resolves to be under the means of grace. And the idea is the means of grace will make up for whatever is lacking in the man's resolve. Friend, this too fails. It fails because the man is still of a mind that he can do something of himself. It is his diligence and attendance upon the means that will bring him to God. And then, thirdly, he simply resolves to believe. And friend, this too fails. This kind of careful view of repentance I think we've lost, but it's the very thing in our text this evening. Ephraim was brought to a point that he acknowledged that if he was turned at all to God, it must be a work of grace. He denounces any ability in himself to do this work for himself. In other words, he comes to that confession or rather, he confesses the truthfulness of what you find in Hosea 13. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. I want you to notice that that's not all that you have here. You have here also a clear confession of faith. For thou art the Lord my God. It's conjunctive, and we need to keep it that way is saying that this God is his. And friend, I want you to recognize that he's not saying this because of his external connection to God through the visible covenant. Faith is not guaranteed to those who are simply externally in the covenant. It is only to those who are truly gods. But Ephraim here says that this turning... This turning is because the Lord is his God, which indicates an inward belonging to the covenant. Now, friend, this you and I are supposed to recognize is a clear statement of faith. Here you have Ephraim, yes, denouncing any ability in himself to turn to God, but at the same time laying hold of the promise that those who do cast themselves upon him by grace invariably will find mercy. Invariably, they will be able to call the Lord their God. To put it to you very directly, think of Matthew 11 just for a moment. The gospel commands us to come humbly. But friend, if you're able to come humbly by your own resolve, then you've been saved by your own hand. No, the, the convinced soul looks at a promise like Matthew 11 and lays hold of that. You remember, it is the call. 
that Christ is the one. He is the one who teaches us to be meek and lowly in heart. So the soul casts itself upon those promises. I have no ability in myself, but one does. One does exercise such coactive grace in those who come to him by faith. A friend, an analogy that helps us, I think, in some ways to see this is, is perhaps that of a servant who through his own criminal activity has, has put himself into prison. And, and friend, he's culpable for his sin, of course. And the master, his master is under no obligation to free him from the prison. And the man, as long as he is incapacitated to serve his master because of his sin, because he's imprisoned, is culpable for all of the things that he owes to his master. But the imprisoned servant acknowledges that, it, that he can't remove himself from the prison. Friend, so also is the truly penitent soul. This one by grace has been taught that they have nothing in themselves. That if the turning is to be done, it must be a work of God's grace that begins and sustains it. And then, friend, you'll note, thirdly, as we close, the effect that this works. Ephraim says, after that I was turned, I repented. Literally, the, the, the text reads, after I was turned, I repented. In which here you have, first of all, Ephraim acknowledging the grace of God. Why was it that Ephraim was turned? It was because the Lord had turned him. Secondly, you'll notice the effect of this. He was instructed. This corresponds to that picture that we had in verse 18, where before he was untamed, now he's instructed. Thirdly, he bore his shame or reproach. No longer was he insensible to God's dealings with him. No longer was he incorrigible. And so, friend, this work of grace that induces Ephraim to turn It acknowledges grace and also carries with it a deep sense of sin. The effect is that it heightened, it heightened rather than lessened his sense of sin all throughout. And it also heightened his estimation of grace at work. It was the Lord who had wrought the work. You see, friend, I think you and I, we often forget, but this is, this is the evidence of a work of grace. It is not simply remorse over sin for a time and then forgetful of sin's death and of grace's bounty. But here you have Ephraim given that grace and turned by grace, but acknowledging even after the fact the sinfulness of sin and the greatness of the mercy he's received. A friend, as we close this text, verses 18 and 19, give us a picture of repentance. A picture that urges us to make much of sin. A friend, our confessions of sin to each other, but especially to God, carry with them so many excuses. We would seek to be our own justifiers. 
Ephraim demonstrates that's not the character of true repentance. True repentance will, as it were, make the man his own judge in the sense that that he will be very careful to show the sinfulness of sin as he comes before God. The second thing you'll see here is that evangelical repentance always also acknowledges man's natural inability. That is, his absolute dependence upon divine grace. Not so as to excuse sin. He remains culpable for his impenitence, yes. And yes, it's repentance that he himself must exercise. But it is a repentance that is granted or given. This too, beloved, belongs to evangelical repentance. But as we close, there is something in this text the beloved should, should thrill our souls. In Acts 5, you have the words that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom, he slew, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Beloved, those who go believingly to this Christ have repented and according to Christ's office will be given greater measures of repentance. Christ by office gives such to the Israel of God. Just briefly, beloved, I want you to notice that what you have in this text then is a wonderful reminder that repentance and faith are not two acts. They are, they are in effect, they are two aspects of a single turning to God. That's how Calvin described it for us several months ago when we, when we looked at these themes before. You see, every act of true repentance must include faith. And every act of true faith must include repentance. They, they go hand in hand. And so, friend, if we leave a text like ours this evening, verses 18 and 19 of Jeremiah 31, and we see so little, so little of that kind of repentance in ourselves, the calling is to throw ourselves upon Christ. And friend, in doing so, that is itself an act of repentance. And if it's done genuinely, it's already a work of God. But as we've just seen from Acts 5, that's a work that Christ by office has promised, covenanted to bring to fruition. And so, beloved, the call from this text is to turn to Christ, who by office turns sinners to himself. May we be a people, beloved, then, who, who daily study this kind of thing in ourselves. Uh, people who daily are careful to distinguish true and false repentance. So as daily to renew our hold upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can grant such to his people. Amen.